Good morning again, church. I'm so glad that uh, we get to see you guys face-to-face. This is, this is fun. I have this weird, uh, interesting thing where I, most of my preaching that I've done in my life has been to a camera at this point now. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so glad to get back to just a step into normalcy again. Uh, those of you tuning in at home, um, again, our, our hearts are with you this morning, and uh, so grateful that you've, you've chosen to spend your morning uh, with us. Uh, this summer, as you, most of you probably know, we've been working our way through the book of Joshua, and uh, we've been looking at this big theme of how God is a promise-keeping God. Um, the main character in the book of Joshua is God. There's a lot of Israelites and Joshua, obviously, um, but... God is the main actor. Uh, Last week, we saw in Trevor's sermon over a huge chunk of the book of Joshua. Bless you, Trevor, for taking on that many chapters in one sermon. Uh, We saw in this verse in Joshua 21, 45, it said, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. Uh, So God is a a promise-keeping God, and he followed through with his word to give the Israelites the land. Uh, Well, now we have two sermons left here in the book of Joshua, one today, uh, one next week on uh, the last two chapters. And uh, we've looked at entering the land, the promised land. We've looked at conquering the land. Last week, Trevor preached about the allotment of the land. And basically now we're looking at kind of living in the land, or perhaps better put, how to be faithful to God and worship him in the land. Uh, This whole book, again, has just been about how God is faithful, and as we look at these last few chapters, we can see that the Israelites are now in their land, they're starting a new life, and the question that remains is whether or not they're going to be faithful to worship God and to follow through on the way that he has commanded. Um, So just really quick before we jump into Joshua 22, let's do some quick Bible review. Um, So if you will, turn in your Bibles to actually Numbers chapter 32, Um, Really important passage to look at briefly, um, just so we get context on today's message. Um, At this point in Numbers 32, the Israelites had already sinned in doubting God about whether they could enter the promised land or not. They had wandered around for 40 years, or at least close to 40 years at this point, as the old generation died off. They were just about to finish this period of wandering in the wilderness, and then the tribes of Reuben and Gad actually decide that they want to stay on the, that other side of the Jordan, on the east side of the Jordan, and not cross over into the promised land that God had prepared for them. Um, and they had been waiting for all these years. Uh, Numbers 32.1, it says that they, the tribes uh, raised lots of livestock and that they saw that the land was good for livestock. So a lot of pasture land. In verse 5, they approach Moses and Eleazar, the priest, and some other chiefs, Uh, in this little meeting, and they say, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. And so Moses' reaction here is he's offended. Um, He says, why wouldn't you want to go? We've been working toward this for years, Um, and that they wouldn't want to go to war with the rest of Israel. Uh, If you read verse 6, he says, shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over in the land that the Lord has given them? But then these tribes come back to him. They say that they, they want to settle here now, but they will go to war with others. And if you look ahead to verse 18, 
it says, We will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance. And then verses 20 to 23, Moses, he blesses that. He says that these tribes can settle on the east side of the Jordan now along. By the end of the chapter, we see that the half of the tribe of Manasseh also has joined in. Um, not sure why it's not mentioned until the end of the chapter, but that's, that's the way it works out. Um, so that's, that's the brief summary of what happened in Numbers 32. So go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter 22. Um, today we're looking at um, the tribes of Reuben and Gad and this half-tribe of Manasseh and their return back across. They've, they came a, over the west. If you remember when we, we preached through crossing the Jordan River, there were all these men that were prepared for war already, and that was these guys. They, they were, had left their families on the other side, had come across with the rest of Israel. Now they're, they're done. They're about to go back. Um, so as we look at this today, I have three points, uh, verses 1 through 9. We're going to talk about long obedience and blessing. Verses 10 through 20, we'll talk about zeal for the right worship of God. And then verses 21 to 34, we'll talk about unity in worshiping the true God. So point one, long obedience and blessing. Let's look at the text. This is uh, verses one through nine. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice and all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but you have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now, to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land, of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. Now, if you guys remember, uh, a few weeks ago, James said in his sermon, um, the rest of the conquest after Jericho and Ai, those are kind of the two big featured chapters, and then there's all this lumped up fighting and conquering that James preached us through. Uh, That period of time took about seven years. So that's a a very large chunk of time to go through in in just a few chapters. Um, These men, these Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they've been fighting alongside their brothers these many years. Um, They have been fighting in many ways in a land that is not their own, that they'll, they'll not continue to dwell in. And their children have been growing up, their wives have been waiting on them, their aging parents may have died without them. But in verse 1, we see this very important detail. It says that at that time, Joshua summoned them. So these East Jordanites, we'll call them the East Jordanites because they live on the the east side of the river, uh, they did not 
pester Joshua. They didn't create some kind of committee to come intercede. They didn't demand their rights. They waited patiently, and they trusted Joshua. They trusted that Joshua would follow in the leadership of Moses, that he would be faithful to the promise, that they would be able to return to their land and be free of obligation. And in this way, they trusted the Lord, that he would fulfill his promise to them. They chose to be submissive to God and to Joshua until the very end. So in verse 2, Joshua, he addresses them, and you can see that he commends them first and foremost. He says, you've kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. You've obeyed my voice and all that I have commanded you. You've not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but you've been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. So just in those verses there, we see the East Jordan Knights have obeyed Moses, they've obeyed Joshua, they've been loyal to the rest of Israel, and they've been faithful to God. And this isn't some kind of bulleted list here, but these things are all very intricately connected to one another. Uh, Just as Jesus tells us that the greatest commandment is that we would love God, and the second is that we would love our neighbors, we can see here that there's a vertical relationship to God that's intricately connected with our horizontal relationship and how that we love others. And this theme of God relationship and others relationship continues as we look over into the later half of the chapter. Uh, Verses 4 and 5, Joshua releases them to go home, and then he charges them um, to follow the law of Moses, to love God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, to cling to him, to serve him with all their hearts and with all their souls. And then in verses 7 through 9, uh, we just see some details about how the spoil of the land was split fairly between the East Jordanites that they carried great wealth back with them as they left. And we see that this long obedience that they've walked in not only yields the opportunity to actually go back to their home and settle where they wanted to settle, uh, but it also yields uh, the work of their hands produces blessing, right? Uh, So before we move on, just two points of application to consider today. Uh, First, we see this amazing example of patience and submission and follow-through in these East Jordanites, in these tribes. Uh, They've done seven years of hard fighting in a land that's not their own. What places in your life are you struggling to follow through in faithfulness? Is it your marriage, your parenting, your fight against sin? This is uh, 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 13. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, he will also, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So it's in Christ, as we look to him, that we see the perfection of God's faithfulness to us. In him... We can place our hope as we acknowledge him in all our ways, as we die to ourselves, as we endure in long obedience to God. We can have the same mindset that the psalmist in Psalm 130 says. Um, This is verses 5 and 6. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Enduring in obedience requires placing our hope in the Lord, not in our circumstances, while we wait for him in obedience. And we can do this because we have the example of Jesus who endured until the very end. He gave us a perfect example of waiting and hoping and endurance. So secondly, 
we have an example in Joshua's leadership here as well um, in how he addresses these tribes before they leave. Um, They're given a strong word of commendation, but then they're also given a word of exhortation or challenge. As we lead others, or simply as we we love others, really in any, any relationship in our lives, we have to follow Joshua's example here to give both challenge and encouragement to others. A challenge without encouragement yields a broken spirit, but encouragement without challenge tends only to flattery. This is Proverbs 28, 23. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. So to truly love someone requires that we have to build them up by speaking the truth in love, by encouraging them and challenging them. Point number two. This is zeal for the right worship of God. Let's look back at the text, verses, verses uh, 10 through 20. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which even from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord. And if you too rebel against the Lord today, that tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, or make us as rebels, by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. We can see, looking at this, the main conflict starts in verse 10. The East Jordanites, just as they cross back over, they construct this altar. It says, an altar of imposing size. And it's right near the Jordan. Now, presumably, the altar is built on the west side of the Jordan. So it's actually the other side. Not their side they live on, but the other side. Um, In verse 11 and 12, we see that word spreads throughout Israel that an altar has been built. Uh, There's this phrase, they heard it said. Uh, I think a lot of us can relate to that. We've heard things said. Uh, Words begin to spread around. Now, clearly, in my mind, if the east... Jordanite tribes had intended to sacrifice and to use this altar, 
it probably didn't make a lot of sense to build it on the other side of the river, right? Uh, maybe they were wanting to go back over to sacrifice in that side of the land. Um, building it on the, the other side was not the most practical of choices. But this didn't stop the people from talking and spreading the word, assuming that they knew the intentions and uh, having their own theories about it. And before long, we see that the whole assembly of the people of Israel gather to make war. Now, that being said, I think it's very easy to take this chapter and to come to a conclusion that the main point of the, the main takeaway we should have is something to the effect of the importance of not jumping to conclusions, or perhaps pause before you act, or maybe don't make hasty assumptions, or maybe just the idea of resolving conflict. Now, these are all real sermon titles on Joshua 22 that I, I looked up from a, just a cursory Google search. Um, when we try to look at the text and we jump to an application immediately, instead of first considering the original audience and the context, thinking about all the things that were going on in their time, and then looking at the grand narrative of the Bible, looking to the gospel and to Jesus, we often miss the text, we often moralize it, and make our own meaning looking through our own lens of our own culture. We don't want to do that today. Assembling for war might seem like an overreaction, and perhaps as we look at the rest of the text, it was, granted. But when we read the whole chapter in context, I think we can see that there's something else deeper at play here. Instead of demonizing the West Jordan tribes and the rest of Israel, and trying to puff up the east side, uh, I want us to see their hearts and why Israel was thinking about this the way they were, why they were assembling for war, and what their actual position was in the midst of this. Um, And most importantly, as we said initially, I don't want us to miss what this text tells us about God, because he is the main actor here. He's the main character. So let's look at verses 13 and 14. Uh, Israel sends out a contingent of leaders to them. They get upset. They're about to make war. And instead of just fighting immediately, they, they send out a group of leaders. Um, Phineas, who's the son of the high priest, and a chief from each tribe, they travel across the Jordan, and they meet to intercede. Um, again, if the people were simply hungry for war, I don't think they would have sent this party of intercession. They just would have come with their, their swords drawn. <laughs> Uh, Verses 15 and 16, this group shows up. They say, What is this breach of fate that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? So what breach of faith are they talking about here? Uh, We can see in, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, we see that Israel's commanded to destroy all the places where other nations have worshiped false gods, including high places, altars, actual idols, In Deuteronomy 12.5, the law reads, But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices. So to worship God by sacrificing on a different altar was heresy. It was worthy of death. Uh, That's why they came with their, their swords ready to go. That's why they were ready to make war. Um, They were breaking the law. When the rest of Israel saw this construction of this altar, the message that they interpreted it was very clear to them. What they were interpreting was that the East Jordanites were no longer following Yahweh. And that was was cause for war. 
Uh, in verses 17 and 18, they reference the sin of Peor and how God will be angry, not just with the East Jordanites, but with all of Israel for a breach of faith. And the sin of Peor takes us back to Numbers 25. Um, we can learn here about the background of Phineas, this leader that they've sent out. Um, he was, this is when Israel was um, living in Shittim, and uh, during their wandering, the text says in Numbers 25 that they began to whore with the daughters of Moab. And they began sacrificing to their gods. And then verse 3 tells us that Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And so in the text here, Moses is meeting with them right outside. He's got a group of people. They're maybe up on a hilltop or something. And in sight of them all, this Israelite man brings this foreign woman into his tent, presumably to, to lie with her. And uh, we read in verse 7, When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on Israel of the people of Israel was stopped. So Phinehas, he's Aaron's grandson, we learn. Um, he sees the situation taking place right in front of his eyes and in front of all these people they're meeting. And he uh, has great zeal about what's happening um, because it's, it's atrocious. And uh, he's, he's ticked off in the spirit, you might say. Um, he decides to take care of the, the situation and to bring swift justice and the Lord is not offended by this, but he blesses it. Uh, we see in verse 11, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel." So Phinehas is greatly blessed by the Lord through this, and he's given an extra covenant of peace, a perpetual priesthood in his lineage. Um, he's, he's greatly praised in this. So this is the same Phinehas. Uh, back to Joshua 22. We can see now that Phinehas, he has this reputation, right? Um, he's zealous for God. He's clearly not afraid to jump in and fight for the Lord uh, when need be and when it's warranted. Yet, in verse 19, we see something profound here. The rest of Israel does not immediately condemn them to death or come again with a spear or swords. Um, but they say, But now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. So they offer for them to move back across the Jordan and to take up residence in their lands. And in verse 20, we can see that they plead yet again for faithfulness to the Lord. And they cite a more recent example about the sin of Achan. And you can remember back uh, Sam's sermon that he preached uh, several weeks ago um, consisted of, of talking about that and un the unfaithfulness that Achan had to the Lord by not destroying all the things that God had devoted to destruction. And uh, many others perished along with him, not just him, right? So the rest of Israel on the west side of the Jordan, clearly had a, a lot of zeal for following the Lord, uh, for worshiping him as he commanded. Um, the right worship of God is what separates the people of God from those who are not the people of God. God cares about our worship, which is not just sacrifices and prayers. 
It's not just coming here on Sunday and, and singing praises, uh, but it's obedience. It's right living to God. In this section, we can see some interesting ideas here of, of temple and priest. This may feel a little academic, but it's, it's really crucial to the, the, the text and to how we think about the gospel. Um, God was to be worshipped in his temple, which was still the tabernacle at this time, um, his designated place where his holiness coexisted with our world, right? It was like God's holiness stuck in the middle of our earthly world. And that is why sacrifices were brought here. That's why there were so many laws about regulating what goes in and out of the temple, about cleanliness. Um, Doing the wrong thing could even cause death at times. That's why the priest existed as well, right? Uh, The priesthood was in place as a mediator between God and man. The we can see Phineas functions as a priest here as well, right? He's, he's actually trying to intercede for the people. And uh, he offers this interesting self-sacrificial proposal of these tribes coming and living back in their land, even though the land's already been allotted. Um, he's sacrificing himself. He's sacrificing the people of Israel in offering for them to come back and to take their land. In Peor, we saw that he interceded for Israel through judgment with a spear, And uh, we have an intercessor, Jesus Christ, who has brought judgment of God upon himself by bearing our sins on a cross, being opened with a spear so that blood and water ran out. He is our perfect high priest. And moreover, he invites us into being being priests as well. Uh, We read in 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we're no longer bound to others for intercession to God, but we can look directly to Jesus. And he's the one who has rescued us and made that available. Uh, moreover, we're not bound to a physical temple when we're worshiping God. We're not bound to this space, this, this uh, building either. Praise the Lord after these six months, right? Um, but Jesus himself has become our temple. In John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, And uh, she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And then verse 23, he says, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Through Jesus, we're called to worship God in spirit and truth. And in truth, in spirit, meaning heartfelt and genuine from the inside of our hearts and our minds, and I would say filled with the Holy Spirit as well. And then in truth, because we're grounded in the reality of of God's word and what he's told us that informs our thinking. Um, God's people are God's people, and we're known as God's people by worshiping him properly. And in this day and age, that's in spirit and truth. So two applications for us before we move on. Um, first off, in conflicts, when you are filled with, with Christian zeal, uh, what's the first thing that comes out of you? Are you ready to fight your brothers and ask questions later? Uh, or are you willing to put something on the line that will inconvenience you and cause great self-sacrifice? Uh, the West Jordanites weren't obsessed with being right in this situation. They were just zealous for God, and they were also clearly zealous for their brothers and for restoration. Uh, I would pray that we can exhibit the same attitude of Jesus who humbled himself 
and gave himself up for us. Secondly, are you worshiping God in spirit and in truth? The, God's people are known as God's people by worshiping him rightly. Do you tend toward just simply a mental acknowledgement of your faith that disengages your emotions and your heart? Or perhaps you're the other way, where your faith is just about expression and uh, being meaningful, but you're neglecting reading the Bible and being disciplined and approaching the Lord in prayer. Uh, when we look to Jesus, we see, we see both of these. We see a grounding in the scriptures. We see emotional expression and heartfelt love for his Father. Uh, if you tend toward either of these ditches, uh, we ask you to pray um, that the Lord will increase your faith and lean into the rest of your community to help you in that, um, to embrace the Lord in both spirit and in truth. All right, finally, point three, unity and worshiping the true God. Let's read the rest of the text. Verse 21, Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, The mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows, and let Israel itself know, If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today, for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. For if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us, or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, Behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an offering for burnt offering or grain offering or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. When Phinehas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation and the heads of the families of Israel who were with him heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas the son of Eleazar the priest said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest and the chiefs, returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought word back to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar of witness, called the altar witness. For, they said, it is a witness between us, that the Lord is God. You know, when we were first visiting Portland uh, a little over five years ago, someone was describing the city and how it's laid out with uh, the Willamette and, you know, the Columbia and others' quadrants and all. And they were telling me how 
you know, people on the west side don't really go over to people on the east side, and the east side doesn't come really over to the west side. I just thought that was the most ridiculous thing. Um, there's multiple bridges across the Willamette. Uh, we were coming from Metro Atlanta, where traffic is horrendous, and I was like, eh, traffic is not as bad here, and the city's half the size. Like, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. But then, after we moved here, and we were here for a little while, I, I understood no reason why I would need to go over there. Traffic builds around the bridges. Um, everything I, I have to do my life is, is right here. Um, and crossing bridges is just a pain. Um, why would I want to go over there? Um, now, imagine if there was only one bridge across, across the Willamette River. Um, how much more would you not want to go over? If there were no bridges, which is probably the case um, in this day and age, uh, maybe some of us wish that that was the case with all the happenings in our city lately, if there, there weren't any bridges. Um, in the same way, that the Jordan River served, obviously, as a natural barrier between the tribes. Um, it was so great that, you know, when they, all the people crossed over originally, God parted the waters to allow them to cross. Um, these men have been fighting again alongside their brothers. They come to the river all of a sudden as they're about to cross back over, and they probably remembered this of, oh man, this river, it's a big barrier. And some of these concerns came bubbling up, right, of what if in time this happens? What if we aren't allowed to come back? This barrier is here. Um, there was a lot of um, anxiety, and I think their anxiety was that they would be able to worship the Lord. Verses 21 and 23, uh, they harshly deny that they were planning to make any sort of sacrifices. They list all possible types of sacrifices to make sure that that's very clear. Uh, burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, um, any sort of sacrifice they say at some point. Uh, in verses 24 and 25, we see their real concerns vocalized. They say, we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, your God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You have no portion in the Lord. And then we see their solution that they propose, verses 26 and 29. They build an altar, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness. It's sort of a monument between these two parties that they both belong to the Lord. It's going to serve as a visual reminder if the West Jordanites were ever to come over and try to make war against them. Obviously, this altar is standing right here, and uh, it, it would remind them that they do have a place before the Lord, that they do come across the Jordan, and that they do give sacrifices to the Lord back on that side of the river. They do worship the Lord, the same Lord, the same way. Um, those on the west side of the Jordan were concerned with ensuring that there was no improper worship, right? We looked at that in the last point. God's people are marked as God's people by worshiping him as he's designated. The East Jordanites were concerned that they would be excluded without reason by others who would actually be forgetting God's commands and promises and would not be faithful to God. Um, irony in that. And we saw that we're, we, they saw, the people on the, the East side that had crossed over, they saw that worshiping the same God made them united. No matter which side of the river they lived on, God, Yahweh, was their God, and it, they didn't want the other side to forget this. Um, verse 30 begins the conclusion of all this. Uh, Phineas and the chiefs understand. They say it's good in their eyes. And then we see in verses 32 and 33, they return to their homes. Uh, verse 34, the altar is named. That seems to always happen in Scripture. Um, at the end of building an altar or a monument, they give it a name, and they name it uh, Witness. And they say it is a witness between us, that the Lord is God. 
And the end of the matter is that they both recognize, despite their geographical differences, that they're both serving the same God. And because of that, they're united in him. So let's apply this to us today. Um, If you're here this morning and you're tuning in with us and you're a believer in, in Christ Jesus, we are united to him first and foremost. But we're also united to one another. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses thir- starting in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. But Paul's talking about Gentiles and Jews being united, but I think we can make the same argument for any two parties that are actually following Jesus and hold to the same gospel. The Israelites back in their day would say Yahweh is God. And that was what they agreed on. And today we confess that Jesus is Lord. And if we have this confession, Paul says in Ephesians 4, a little later on, he says there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. While we must not neglect our zeal for making sure that God is worshipped in spirit and truth, we must not also neglect our faithfulness to God by being united with those who genuinely profess the name of Jesus and follow him. If you're listening this morning and you've never turned to put your faith and hope in Jesus, I would urge you to see the beauty of worship this morning. Uh, Reading a passage like this can feel a little jarring. Um, There's a lot of strange things happening. Um, You've got uh, this idea of people that are going to civil war over an altar, which uh, might seem absurd to someone outside of the faith. You've got temples, you've got priests. Uh, But here's the fact. All of history points to and is centered around that Jesus was born on this earth, that he died on a Roman cross because God loves his people, that he created so much that he wants us to worship him rightly. And if we look back at the scripture just one more time for a moment, in verse 31, Phineas said, We know the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. In other words, what he's saying is that God had interceded. They knew that God had interceded in this situation because God had protected them from his own judgment. My friends, that's exactly what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He's protected us from his own judgment by sending his son to take our sins and to stand in our place. Jesus bore the punishment for our sin. In his power, he rose again. He conquered sin and death forevermore. Because of sin, the only way that God can be worshipped rightly is through sacrifice and bloodshedding and ultimately death. And Jesus sacrificed himself. He shed his blood and he died on our behalf so that we can have his righteousness, not from anything that we've done, not from any good of our own, but simply because of his grace given through faith because of what he has done. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, turn to him. He loves you, and he's worthy of all your worship, which you can give him rightly because of him. Let's pray.